So, I have found it very interesting over the years how little minds, by that I mean children's minds, put the pieces together. Um, Jill and I have marveled with both of our children, and if you've had children, you have too, at how much they understand at a young age, how many things they get, but also how sometimes they can take two and two and end up at five or ten or twenty or anything but four. Um, This was certainly true this summer as we were getting ready to move. So Evie, our youngest, had caught on that we were going to move. And so Evie, three or four months before we move, says to me, breakfast, Daddy, is this the day we put everything in boxes and leave this old house for another one? No, sweetie, there's a lot of work to happen between now and then. It's going to be a long time away. But as the weeks wore on, it started to become apparent that this had sunk into her in a way that was actually quite fear-inducing. And what she was feeling is what's very common in a child her age, which is this fear that she was going to get left. This fear that she would wake up one morning or that she would come out one afternoon and what she knew was going to be gone. The furniture would be gone, the stuff would be gone, the family would be gone, and somehow she would have been forgotten by mommy and daddy. And it, it was a just a cringe-inducing terror that it actually produced in her. So we stepped out into the garage one afternoon just to look at something on a car real quick. And then we hear her running through the house screaming for mommy and daddy in just terror. We rush back inside and we say, sweetie, we are here. We're here. We are not going to forget you. We promise. We are your mommy and daddy. You are loved. Do not worry. And she believes us. She believed us. She knew that we were there, but the thing is, in the moments, she would start to doubt. When she woke up and the house was just a little too quiet, when mommy had stepped out to the mailbox, when dad went on a trip, when she woke up in the middle of the night, suddenly she would have this doubting fear and she would think, was the promise not true? Are they not here? She really believed, but then in the moments she would doubt. And of course, it strikes me that that's really us in faith so many times, right? We really believe. I mean, we have laid our lives on the, ground, on the line for this gospel. We think it is our only hope and truth. We believe, but then in the moments we doubt. In the moments we suddenly say, well, is this really true? Or, or am I actually alone? Did we make this thing up? Did we forget? Well, in Genesis 15, we see God coming to Abram, who both really believes but doubts. And we see how God encounters Abram in both his belief and his doubt. And in Genesis 15, we learn that when we believe but we doubt, God assures us with a covenant. That when we believe but we doubt, God assures us with a covenant. And let's look at that in three ways tonight. First, that God makes promises. Second, that we both believe in doubt. And third, that God will assure us with a covenant. So first off, God makes promises. You certainly see that in this passage with Abram. The most fundamental of them is the first, verse 3. God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, do not fear. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. In other words, Abram, do not be afraid because I am with you. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will be everything you need. And keep in mind the person to whom he says this. The Bible says that Abram was a sojourner. That's just Bible speak for he was an immigrant. 
He was a new person in a strange land. He didn't know the customs. He didn't know the weather. He didn't know the method. He might not even have known the language yet. He was away from everything he knew. He was away from his culture, his family, his context. And to this immigrant in a strange land, God says, Abram, I've got your back. You can trust me. And then there are two more promises. Verse 5, he says, Abram, let's go outside. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. Now, actually, it occurs to me, we live in Washington, D.C., so I might need to explain this one to you a little bit. Um, There are these things up there called stars. And in most parts of the world, when it gets dark, you can actually see them at night. Now, I I know that's hard to believe, but stick with me. It gets worse. There are actually millions of them, maybe billions. In fact, our galaxy, the Milky Way, you can see it. In fact, you can hike at night without a flashlight. You can almost read a book on a good night by the Milky Way. And God says, count them if you can. The truth is you can't. Abram, you will have more children than that. You'll have more descendants than that. And then verse 7, if that's not enough, this land where you are an immigrant, Abram, it will be yours. All of it. I'm going to give this to you. God makes all sorts of amazing promises to Abram. And of course, God makes amazing promises to us. Now, it's important to realize not all the same promises. As some of you know, with great heartache, God doesn't necessarily promise us children. As others of you know, with a different but very great heartache, God doesn't always promise us land. You may have lost the house. But God does promise us the same thing he promised Abram in verse 3. I will be with you. I will be your shield. I will be your very great reward. In other words, God says, do not fear you of little faith. I'm with you. And how do we react to that? Well, this is the second point. We react to that both by believing and by doubting. And this is true of Abram. Abram, in the text, hears the promise from God, and he believes. Now, the amazing thing to me, actually, as I think about it more, is that he believes it all. Think of this. God has said to a man who's 90 years old and has never had a child, you're going to have more kids than the stars of the sky. He has said to a man who is an immigrant wandering in a strange land, you're going to own it all. And in verse 6, it says, Abram believed And so the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram really believes, so much so that the Bible goes and tells us he did. This is no passing belief. This is no fake faith. It's a deep, true belief. But then the audacious nature of these promises starts to sink in. I mean, hold on. He's 90, never a kid. He's an immigrant to own the land. So verse 3, after God says, I'm going to be with you, Abram responds and says, well, come on, God. I don't have any descendants. My family line's going to end with me. One of the servants of my household is going to pick up the pieces. God says in verse 8, in verse 7, you're going to have a land. He replies in verse 8 with a really good question. Well, God, how in the world am I going to know that I could have this? Abram believes, but then... He doubts because the promises he received looked so different than what his eyes see. He thinks, did I make this all up? Am I fooling myself? Was it a hallucination? 
how do I know it's true? And of course, that's right where we are again, right? We believe, but then we doubt. It's actually standard for the Christian life. Don't think that pastors are immune from it. We've, we've devoted our whole lives to this thing, our professional careers, our educations, our life in the world to come, and our life right now. But you know what? Doesn't it ever stop you and go, wait, is this crazy talk? I mean, it seems so wild. We're in Advent, where we testify that the God who made everything simply by speaking out of nothing, just spoken into existence, decided to enter his creation incarnate in the form of a man, taking on a human body that he would have and would keep forever. Well, if that's not enough, then we believe that he died, rose from the grave, and 2,000 years ago and counting went up to reign in heaven, and he said he's going to come back, and we wait for it. Do you ever have the moments where you go, what if we made it up? What if it's not true? What if I'm following a myth? I mean, how do I know? I believe, but, but I have my doubts. And the third point, in that context, God comes and he assures us with a covenant. So let's try to explain the second half of this passage from verse 9 on. Check out what Abram's question was in verse 8. He said, but God, how am I going to know? And God gives what seems like a complete non sequitur of an answer. He says, bring me a female cow, bring me a ram, bring me a goat, and bring me a couple birds. And you think, how's that an answer? But to Abram it was, because Abram knew what God was saying. Because Abram knew what these things meant. And it's really interesting. Look what Abram does in verse 9. He doesn't just bring the stuff, but then what does he do? He cuts each of the large animals in half. He lays them out side by side. Why? How did he know to do that? He knew to do that because he knew what God meant when God said, bring these things. He knew that God was setting up what was called a covenant ceremony. And we actually know a fair amount what this meant too because we've dug up lots of copies of these from the ancient world. And what would happen is this. This is what a covenant ceremony was. You would have a great king who conquered a little king. And the great king would come to that little king and say, we are going to have a covenant. And I'm going to set the terms. And the king would say, this is how it will be. This is what you must do. And then in that context, he would make the little peon king he'd conquered do some very unkingly work. He would make him take all these animals, cut them in half. He would, this little king would be gross, covered in goop, bloody, mucky, messy, exhausted, strung out. And he would say, great, arrange them in two rows. And what would happen is the great king would look at the little king and say, walk between them. And in walking between these two rows, the little king was taking on himself a conditional curse. He was testifying, if I do not keep this covenant, if I do not do what my great king overlord says, then let me be made in my flesh like I just did to these animals. Let me be torn. And he was basically experiencing a very visceral object lesson. If I do not live up to everything that this great king has demanded of me, may I be made like that. 
This is why this deep darkness falls on Abram in chapter tw- in verse 12. He's already asleep. It's not physically that it just got dark. It's an emotional, it's a spiritual darkness because Abram knows how this works. And the king who cut up it all, the king who's goopy and gross and messy is the one who walks between the halves and he knows which one he is. And so when God says, let's make a covenant ceremony, he knows that he is in the position of the one who must keep everything that the great king has told him. Well, what has God told him? You will become a great nation with many descendants and you will own this whole land. And Abram must know that that's beyond him. This guy's 90. He's never had a kid. This guy's the immigrant. He knows if God makes him walk down that aisle that he has no hope. And what happens? What happens in verse 17? A torch, blazing torch, and a smoking fire pot appear and pass down the road between the animals. The Israelites who'd wandered in the desert for 40 years who are reading about this hundreds of years later would know exactly what that meant. The Israelites who had followed God in a pillar of cloud, a flaming fire, knew what this meant. So, listen to verses 18 to 20 again. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. Who took the walk? Who didn't? This upends everything. It was never done this way. It was the little guy who always took the walk of the covenant. But instead, God shows up and God passes through the pieces. God says, and and let this sink in with its fullness, God says, may I be cursed. May I be torn in two like these animals if I do not do for Abram what I have promised. And of course, this is what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. The scriptures go out of their way to talk about the work of Christ as the new covenant in Christ's blood. God was and is determined to make millions and billions of children for Abram. And so when you look up at the cross and when you see Jesus with the thorns pushed into his brow, when you see him spread out with the nails ripping his hands and feet, when you see the spear splitting his side, you realize that Jesus has done it. That God was willing to even curse himself. And Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 29, when you see this truth, when you realize Christ crucified and raised from the dead, when you receive him as Savior and Lord, when you know the truth of who he is, Paul says you have become a son or daughter of Abraham. God has done it in the new covenant and you're in my blood. He has made it true. He has confirmed it for us. Now back in Georgia, Jill and I grabbed Evie and we pulled her tight, got down on our knees to talk to her and we said, sweetie, you are our child and you are loved and you will always be loved. We could no more leave you than we could leave our very selves. We promise you with everything that we are that we will keep you tight, that you will not be forgotten, that you will not be abandoned and forsaken. Now, how could two flawed parents say that? Well, we could make that vow because it was true. 
But how much more is it true than when your God comes down to you and says, I have walked in your shoes. I have walked with you through the fire. And you are mine, O little sheep, and I am yours. And so, lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. We believe, but we doubt. And so God comes in covenant and says, you can have faith. I'm with you. So let's pray together. God, our Father, we come and we come with our little faith, our lack of faith, our lack of trust. But there's a, there's a loaf and a fish in there. There's a little morsel of faith. And we pray that in that, you would be with us. That you would magnify that. That you would help us when we doubt. Because we confess that we do. But we also trust that you have kept us safe. And you have brought us here and you will bring us through. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.